The book of Acts, we've been almost now a year and a half working our way through. Uh, and it's the story or the, the history of the early church. It covers a period of about 30 years from the time of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection uh, and about 30 years of the early church. And there's 28 chapters in it, and so it doesn't give you every single thing that happened in the life of the early church, but it, it sort of chronicles some of those significant events that really uh, paint the picture of the church expanding and spreading into all the world. And one of the characters that we've been looking at is the Apostle Paul. And pretty much the entire second half of the book follows this man as he goes on these various journeys and he brings the gospel in, in many ways to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth, at least in that day. Paul, in chapter 22, uh, or 21, 20, has just finished his third missionary journey. And he made his way back to the city of Jerusalem. He had a heart for the people of Jerusalem. He had a heart for the Jewish people. We, we see that he also wanted to get back to Jerusalem because he wanted to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts. Now, for some people, that's surprising. I thought he was a Christian. Well, he was a man of Jewish background that began to follow Christ. And those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, or at least they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And Paul had a great desire to win the Jews to the Christian faith, even as he himself was one to the Christian faith. And so we saw he made his way back to Jerusalem. Some word was going around that uh, Paul, people are saying, you're trying to destroy the Jewish faith. And Paul's like, I'm not trying to do that at all. And they came up with this plan. Well, here's what you do. Go into the temple, celebrate one of the vows that they have there, support some other people as they celebrate one of those vows. And then everyone's going to know that you're not against the Jewish faith, that they, the things that they'd been hearing were wrong and, and everything will be good. And, and Paul went in on that. He said, all right, we can do that. I don't have a problem with that. The vow that he took was a vow of consecration. It was a vow to communicate gratefulness to God for all he had done in their life, his life. And it was a vow to sort of communicate, I really want to serve you even better than I have been before. Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing. And so Paul was down with that. He went with it. But unfortunately, as we saw right at the end last week, we, we kind of left off in a cliffhanger last week uh, where... We don't know what's going to happen next, except most of you have already read it. Um, so it's not as exciting as if you're watching your favorite TV show. Um, but the cliffhanger was this. Paul is in there prepared to offer this vow, and the people go crazy. They drag him out, and they're going to beat him to death and kill him. Uh, so that's what we're going to pick up today. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 30. It says, Now then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates of the temple were shut. And so he was seized. We see in verse 31, it was by a mob of people that, look, were seeking to kill him. How about that? Just like Will read earlier in John chapter 15, Jesus' words of admonition, this is what's going to come down on followers of Christ, is now coming down in the Apostle Paul. They were seeking to kill him. And word made its way to the commander of the Roman army there who had to get in there quickly and restore order. In our Bibles, or at least the ESV, the one that we're using here uh, on Sunday mornings, it tells us that it was the tribune of the cohort. 
Tribune is his title. It was the commander of the garrison, as some of the other versions tell us. And his plan was arrest the guy, get him out of there, and then we'll figure things out when you know, the fighting has stopped. And so the Apostle Paul is arrested. Look at verse 32. This is something I noticed this week, even though this is material from last. It says in verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. Now we learned last week that a tribune or the commander of the garrison commanded uh, about 600 men, five or 600 men. A centurion commanded 100 men. You can, also, you can see the word century in the word centurion. And so in that verse, it points out that he took the soldiers and centurions. So he brought at least 200 men with him, these leaders of the 100 men each. He brought at least 200 men with them to stop what was going on with the Apostle Paul, the beating, the attempt to kill him, and restore a bit of order. And so Paul is arrested. He's put in chains. He's dragged in. And as we saw last week, and now we'll, we'll jump into our new material for today, as Paul's about to kind of go into the building there, the fortress, he says to the tribune, could I have permission to speak to the people before going in? And he said it in the Greek language, and he said it in the perfect, well-educated Greek language. And the tribune is sort of taken aback. And he says, you know Greek? He says, I not only know Greek, I know good Greek, is what he said to him, or something like that. He says, yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Cilic in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, and so I beg you, permit me to speak to this people. I'm one of the Jews that comes from Tarsus in Cilicia, that sort of highly represented people there. I know what I'm saying, and I know how to say it. And he convinces this tribune, well, you know what? You seem like a reasonable guy. Sure, we'll let you talk to the crowd. That's pretty significant. You would expect most tribunes would say, no, just get in here. I'll figure it out myself. Um, but he says, okay, you can do that. Even more impressive, look at verse 40. And there was a great hush over the crowd. I think almost a miraculous hush over this angry crowd that wanted to kill the apostle a moment ago. Now they're willing to listen to him. And so we jump into our new material. Chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Paul says this, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Now, one of the last verses of the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 40, it says that Paul said this in the Hebrew language. So when he spoke to the tribune, he spoke to him in perfect Greek. Now that he's about to address this crowd, he's going to speak to them in the Hebrew language. More properly, that's worded in the language of the Hebrews. And that's why we say the Hebrew language. But he was probably speaking to them in the language of the Hebrew people of that day in that community, which was Aramaic, which was a language that the Tribune was probably not as familiar with. He probably had an idea of the true Hebrew language. He obviously knew the Greek language, this Aramaic thing, not so much. I recognize some words. And it seems that's the language that Paul addresses this people in the language of the Hebrews, which would have been what we might call today their heart language. This is the language they can hear their mother saying to them when they were three years old. This is the language they speak around the house. This is the language when they're not out in sort of official things dealing with other people that may not know that language. It's the language that they use, the Aramaic language or the language of the, he the Hebrews. 
And I think this is significant that Paul chooses to speak in that language to this group of people. He could have done it in formal Hebrew. He could have done it in formal Greek. Maybe there's some other Greeks, uh, Greek-speaking people that would have been around. But he chooses to do it in the language of the Hebrews for this group of people specifically that are in front of him. In this chapter, Paul is going to tell his story. And this is one of the first things that the Apostle Paul does that I think is valuable for us to look at and to learn from. Paul chooses to speak to them in a language that will connect with them. And so immediately they're going to stop and say, that just sounds, that sounds like my dad. And he's going to immediately be able to connect with them by choosing to speak to them in that language. That's Paul's goal. Paul's going to preach the message of the gospel to this group of people. Not to win an argument, but to win a soul. And I think that's very important. Because we know how important it is to go to the evangelism training. We know how important it is to go to places like the boardwalk and to be there. We know how important it is when we're at work and somebody wants to bring something up where we want to have that conversation with them. But let me just begin by this. Why? Why do you want to talk to those people? Because I want to put them in their place. I want them to know they're wrong and I'm right. And if that's our hard attitude, we're missing the point. Our hard attitude needs to be, I want to win this soul. And so where I can, I will make little compromises on my part in order to win this soul. And so, you know what Paul's heart language probably was? Greek. Up in Tarsus, that's the language he was probably familiar with. And yet he chooses to speak in Aramaic, a language he probably wouldn't have been as familiar with. He chooses to speak in that, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of his listeners. Because he wants to win his listeners. He's going to go on, he's going to tell them his story. He's going to convince his listeners, or try to at least, that they too should become followers of Jesus Christ. I think it's important today as we look at this passage to look for ways that we can apply it uh, to our own lives, because that's what Jesus sends us forth to do as well. Not just some official people that do it from a stand or a podium or something like that, not just for folks that go on a mission trip to a prison or to a boardwalk, but for every one of us to share and to communicate our faith with another individual in a way that is effective, that that other individual is going to say, you know what, I'd like to find out more about this thing that you're telling me, that they're drawn to the Lord themselves. Now, hopefully for us, it's not in front of an angry crowd that was just trying to kill us, but potentially it could be. And so as we look here at the Apostle Paul, we consider sort of his methods the first thing that we take notice of is how he attempts to connect with his listeners, using that as a point of connection. When sharing your faith, where possible, take steps to connect with your listener. Now, at the same time, please don't be fake. You're talking with a bunch of kids. You don't have to use their lang- lingo or whatever because you look like an idiot, all right? <laughs> especially if you're my age or whatever. But just be real, be honest, be open. Look for opportunities to connect with them. Paul does that in this very simple way of using his Hebrew language. Verse 2 goes on. It says, Now when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So remember it said a great hush fell over the crowd. Now they're hearing him speak in the language that that they're familiar with. And they show him even more respect than they had been a moment ago. I think in response to his demonstration of respect for them. 
Again, he's not trying to just win a fight and put them in their place. He's trying to win them to the Lord. And so it says, in the Hebrew language, uh, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. The word defense is the Greek word apologia. This passage was written in Greek. So he's speaking in Aramaic. Luke's writing the story down in Greek. And we have it in English. How about that? Uh, And that word defense is the Greek word apologia. We get the word apology um, from. We get the word apologetics from. And when you think of an apology, it's not just a I'm sorry. There's a lesson my wife taught me when we got married. And and I've learned it. And I filed it right there. Is I would say, I'm sorry. And she would say, husbands, for what? what? I don't know. I really don't know anymore. I'm just sorry, Uh, or whatever. And you had to give an explanation, so to speak. And so that's this idea of an apology or a defense is to give an explanation. That's what Paul is going to do. It, It really means this. It's a formal defense of one's past life or actions. It's an explanation of the reason why a person did something or said something or whatever it might be in that in that genre there. And so Paul says this, he says, let me explain to each of you who I am and why I am who I am. That's his apology. That's his defense. His defense here is going to be his own story. His testimony is a word we use a lot. He's going to give his testimony of how he came to the faith. And an interesting thing for us in our New Testaments, again, remember the New Testament, and particularly the book of Acts, it covers 30 years of history. And yet three times in the book of Acts, Paul's story is repeated for us. The first time that it occurred, Acts chapter 9, here, when he's telling a group of Jews about it, Acts chapter 22, we're going to see it again in Acts chapter 26 when he's before a Gentile king. And then Paul mentions it in the book of Philippians when he's trying to explain to the Philippians the change of mindset that went in him, went on in him, he uses his story to explain that. And then again in 1 Timothy when, uh, chapter 1 when he's writing to young Timothy uh, and sort of explaining what went on in him and the work that God did within him. And so five times we have this story in the limited pages of our Bible. I think one of the things at the very least that that communicates to us is our story is important. Your testimony of how you came to know the Lord is important, and you should be prepared to tell it to others. Paul had met Jesus, we read it, on the road to Damascus, and that forever changed his life. And many of you have a very similar experience. Maybe it wasn't on the road to Damascus, maybe even it wasn't a one-time event, but it was over this period of time, but God changed who you are. And he changed the direction, the direction that you are going. That's an important story that needs to be told. Now, truth be told, Paul's experience in and of itself doesn't necessarily make it true. People have all kinds of experiences. But it certainly adds weight to the veracity of his argument. And one of the most powerful defenses that we can have for the faith is our story, our testimony or change lives. Because people can argue with anything that we say theologically, they can argue philosophically, but they can't argue with what the Lord has done for us personally. 
who you are, were and who you now are. I'm reminded of the man born blind, one of my favorite stories in, in the Gospels. And this fellow here, this is told in John chapter 9. That man, you might recall, he encountered Jesus. And Jesus, met, that's the story where he took some mud and he, he applied it to the man's eyes and he told the man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. I'll read it to you. It says, he anointed the man's eyes with mud. He said to him, go wash in the pool. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now you can read the whole story for yourselves there. But that healing of that man led to a theological debate with the religious leaders there in the city of Jerusalem. They see this guy walking and they're like, hey, you're that guy. And it led to this theological debate. And the man finally says this. I'll, I'll put it in Greg's words. He said, look, I don't know anything about all that theology stuff. But what I know is this. Though I was blind, now I see. That's what I know. My life has been changed. And people can argue, and I think you should study theology. I think you should study apologetics, philosophy even, developing an argument that you can see through. All those skills and techniques I think are valuable and important. But people can argue with all of them. And people can determine, like, yeah, you know what? You make a lot of sense, but I'm not interested. It's very difficult to argue with a changed life. This is who I was. This is who I am. And that's what this man said here. One thing I know for sure is I was blind, and now I see. Sometimes we're reluctant to share our faith with others for fear of the questions that they might ask. What if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? And you tell them. What do you tell them? I don't know that answer. I'm sorry. And what I think you should then do, do is go find out the answer. Get yourself a book, go on a good place online or something like that, research the answer, study the answer. And if the opportunity, maybe it's somebody at work, you come back to them the next time you see them. And you said, hey, you know, you asked me that thing the other day, and I went back and I did some reading. And this was a site that I found helpful. If you're on the boardwalk or something, you never see them again, then that's not what it is. But if you have the opportunity, you find out for yourself, and then you go back and you tell them. And so Paul here, his defense was the defense of his transformed life. Paul was spiritually blind. That guy in John 9 was physically blind. Paul was spiritually blind, but now he sees. His story is important. Verse 3 goes on. He said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, <coughs> and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem so that they too would be punished." This story is familiar. Acts chapter 9 is where it's written for the first time, sort of live as the events were occurring. But notice what Paul does here. As he's sharing his faith, he begins with a section that we might call this, this is who I was. And so I, I'm going to encourage you, when you get some time this week, later today, I think you should, at, at the very least, outline your testimony. Your story of your conversion, how God did a work in you. And it begins with a section on, this is who I was. The guys that are going away to the prison uh, next week, this is one of the things we had to do in our application. We all had to sort of write out our story. Could we all do it? 
Okay, yeah, we all did it. Um, it's been a while since I've done it, but, uh, and you begin with, this is who I was. This is where I came from. This is what I came out of. And Paul begins to talk about his past. His past would have been identical to a lot of the people that were out there in the crowd. Maybe not every single detail, but his mindset, his thinking, his actions, all those kind of stuff. And so what does Paul do? Paul begins with his Jewish roots. What this tells me, if Paul's talking to a group of Jews, he may emphasize different things about his past than if he was talking with a group of Greeks or Gentiles, because they may not be able to identify with these things. And so sometimes when we're sharing our faith, we got it down. And I, I just memorize it. If somebody, no, stop, don't interrupt me, because it's all memorized and it has to come out in order or whatever. No, you have to be real with people. You got to talk with people. You got to interact with people. You have to ask them questions, find out where they're at. And then as the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing you and you're sensitive to his leading, you respond accordingly. And that might mean not you're changing the facts, but you're emphasizing different details. And so Paul here, he connects with these Jewish listeners by beginning with his Jewish roots. He talks about how he was from the city of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is a Gentile city, but it had a sizable Jewish population. And it was a um, sort of a, a well-educated, respected group of Jews that lived in that particular city. And so when Paul mentions that, that's immediately in his listeners, they're going to be aware of that. It's immediately going to say, oh, okay, this guy, he's got something to say. I likened it this way. It's, it would be like a Roman Catholic introducing themselves as being from Rome. Now, that may not mean anything. All right, so what? But if you say, well, I'm a Roman Catholic and I'm from Rome, you're suddenly going to be like, oh, this guy probably knows. The Vatican's around the corner from him. And so with Paul, I'm from Tarsus. Okay, this guy is a real Jew, an educated Jew. Let's, let's listen further. Paul, he says, I was brought up in this city. Now, that, now he's talking about Jerusalem. So I'm from Tarsus. That's where I kind of got my roots. And then when I was a young man, 8, 10, 12 years old or whatever, I came to Jerusalem, and he says that I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Now, Gamaliel was a well-known rab rabbi of first century Jerusalem. This event that we're reading about, this occurred somewhere around the year 57 A.D., Gamaliel died somewhere around 54 AD. So he had just died in Jerusalem. People knew who he was. He was well-respected. He was honored. He led sort of a, a segment of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem that was very strict. They followed the, the laws of, um, of Moses as closely as they could, and the interpretation of people like Gamaliel and other rabbis that came before him. People would have known who he was. And so Paul says, like, he went to his school when he was a little kid. And he says, look, I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. So I'm not some wishy-washy Jew. I'm not some guy in here that kind of does what he wants to do. Like, I'm following the strictest manner of the law that I possibly can, or I was, Paul said. We saw Gamaliel back in chapter 5. He was the one who stood up. It says, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel stood up and gave orders 
to put the men outside for a little while. This is that whole sort of trial of Peter and John. But notice what it says right in the middle of that verse. He was a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. He was very respected. Paul draws his attention to that. Even today, there are Jews that respect Gamaliel from 2,000 years ago. And so that's a big deal. Verse 3 continues, and he says, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. As I said earlier, Paul's trying to connect with his listeners. This is like, I think, the nicest thing Paul could say. Now, who's this crowd? They just tried to kill him, remember? Dismember him, do whatever. They just tried to kill him moments ago. And Paul is searching for something nice to say about them as he's trying to connect with them. And he says to them, he, he says that you are, that I was as zealous for God as all of you are this day. That's the nicest thing that I can come up with. This crowd was saying that Paul was anti-Jewish or anti-Jewish faith. And he says, look, in my past, I was as zealous for the faith as each of you guys are on this day. I was just as zealous as each of you. I maintained the customs of Judaism. I maintained the practices of Judaism. His point, though, is this. He's connecting with his listener, and he's saying, look, I understand what you're thinking. I understand why you attacked me. I was once an attacker, just like you guys are attackers of me in this moment here. Now, Paul says this 20, 25 years after he had become a Christian. I think that's an important point here because Paul, in his mind, is still able to get into the mind of the unbeliever. And I know where you're coming from. I know why you're doing what you're doing. I know what you're thinking. I think that's important because sometimes the longer that we've been a Christian, we sort of forget how the unbeliever thinks. In some cases, that's probably good. But we can no longer relate. We can no longer connect. We can no longer be effective in our interaction with those folks. Paul has the ability to enter into their thinking, so to speak. He proves his point about how zealous he was. Look at verse 4. I persecuted this way. Now, in the first century, particularly the first 20 years or so of the church, the Christian church was called the way. And so that's what he's referring to. I persecuted this way to the death and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priests and others, they can tell you. They were there. They remember. Paul wasn't just opposed to the Christians. He made it his mission to put an end to the Christian faith. Maybe you remember in our study of Acts chapter 7, the first person that was put to death for the Christian faith was a guy by the name of Stephen. He became the first martyr of the Christian faith. And it tells us at the end of that account, when, the, when a mob, just like this mob, when a mob of angry people took up stones and they killed Stephen with those stones, it tells us at the end of that passage, actually the first verse of the next chapter, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Now we're talking about Paul. Remember, Paul, prior to his conversion, was primarily referred to as Saul. Post-conversion, he was primarily referred to by his Gentile name, Paul. And so it's the same guy we're talking about. And so it says, and Saul approved of his execution. And as I pointed out at that time, that doesn't mean that he sort of stood on the side and said, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. What it means is, as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the Jewish people, he gave the people permission to take the life of this man, Stephen. That's very different, isn't it? 
actually authorizing it compared to, yeah, do whatever you're going to do. And so Paul had Stephen executed. And so here in chapter 22, he says, look, I know where you're coming from. I know what you're thinking. I did the same things a number of years ago. This is who I was. Now Paul transitions to this is what happened to me. It says, uh, he says, this is what happened to me. Now on one of those cities that Paul was going to to put Christians to death, it was the city of Damascus. We read about this story again in Acts chapter 9. You can go there, you can look at it. And he's going to transition from who I was to what happened in my life here. An event that changed the entire direction of his life. That starts in verse 6. He says, now as I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, those who were with me, they saw the light, but they did not understand or recognize or or make out the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand uh, by those who were with me, and I came into the city of Damascus. This is Paul's conversion experience. And so he began his speech with this crowd by connecting with his listeners, stressing the common identity he shared with his listeners. Now he transitions to where there are differences between he and his listener. This is why he's telling them this story, so that they can come to the place of conversion themselves. And we considered the specific of Paul's conversion back when we studied Acts uh, Acts chapter 9. So you can go back and you can look at it. But I do want to point out a couple of things here. First, notice what he says in verse 6. We learned the timing of the event. We didn't know this from Acts chapter 9. We're not told that there. But we are told it here that it occurred about noon. That's significant because the brightness of the light that Paul encountered in this event is brighter than the noonday Middle Eastern sun. Does that make sense? That's not something we learned in Acts chapter 9, so it's helpful for you uh, to, say, to, to learn that or, or to see that pointed out there. Second thing that we, we notice here, we learned this in Acts 9 as well, but that accompanying the great light or the glorious light was a voice as well. And the voice says to the apostles, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul, based on his response, and this is a little tricky, I was trying to write this in such a way, based on his response in verse 8, it's, it's, it's evident that Paul immediately knew what was speaking to him, not who was speaking to him. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, who are you, Lord? So Paul immediately knew, excuse me, Paul immediately knew that it was the Lord that spoke to him. That in, I know it's not proper English because the Lord is a person, but that's the what, so to speak, the Lord. So Paul knows, I am talking to God right now. What he doesn't know is what God's name is, so to speak. Because God just said to him, why are you persecuting me? 
And Paul's response would have been, I'm not persecuting you. I'm out here serving you by dealing with these Christians that are trying to lead people astray. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, what's your name? Lord, who are you? And the Lord responds, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So notice this. Paul, remember earlier he said, I was zealous for these things. Paul, in his zeal, was wrong in his zeal. It's possible to be very zealous for something and to be wrong. And Paul was. There's a couple of interesting points, I think, about this. Paul, as far as we know, had never even met Jesus physically during the days of the Lord. He probably saw him from a distance, something with the Sanhedrin or something like that. But as far as we know, he never interacted with him, never talked to him, never yelled at him, never said anything like that to the physical Jesus. And yet here, Jesus declares that Paul had been persecuting him. Now, in human sense, Paul had been persecuting followers of Jesus. But notice what Jesus does. He sees that as a direct attack against himself. And so I think that's significant because that means, Paul, you don't have to take it personally. These people in front of you, don't take it personally. They're not screaming at you. They're not mocking you. They're not laughing at you. In Paul's case, they're not, they're not the ones. They're not beating you. They're persecuting Jesus. Paul's, or Jesus, I should say, sees it as a direct attack against himself. Second thing I mentioned just briefly here is Paul had zealously been doing this, but he was wrong in that. And it's possible to be wrong even in your zeal. And so in that, Paul doesn't have to take it personally that these people in front of them are so zealous and yet so wrong. Because Paul was wrong in his zeal, and that's where they're at at this particular point in time. Does that make sense? And that changes everything. Because if I feel like I'm personally being attacked, well, now I'm going to attack back. And I'm going to put you in your place. And I'm going to show you that I know a whole lot more than you. But if it's not personally against me, I can just pull back and I can even say, Lord, I'm sorry. They don't know. Lord, they're blind. Open their eyes. It's a big heart change, attitude change. I think it's a significant one. So Paul is, in so many words, he's saying here, look, I know exactly where you guys are coming from. I was there myself. Look at verse 10. He explains what the Lord told him to do. Then I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So Paul calls the Lord, Lord, Supreme One, and then the Lord says to him, in, in some regard, all right, we're going to see, am I really your Lord? I want you to go to this place and wait further instructions. Now, how do we, a lot of us respond to things like that? I'm not going until you tell me exactly where I'm going and what I'm doing, and then I'll make a decision if I want to agree. Well, that's not lordship. And so Paul says, what do you want me to do, Lord? What shall I do? And the Lord says, perfect. I want you to go and wait further instruction. And so Paul does that. I think here Paul's point might be, if any of his listeners encountered God and God said to them, I want you to go and wait further instruction, what would they have done? Okay, okay. very good, Tony. That's what I'll do. I'll wait. So what did you want Paul to do? 
What did you want me to do, Paul might be saying to these guys here. He makes a complete, total commitment. He submits himself to it. Prior to that, he thought he was doing the will of God by going and killing Christians. Now he realized he hadn't been doing the will of the Lord at all. And so he immediately takes steps to remedy that. He goes to Damascus, he waits. Verse 11, and since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me into the city. Verse 12, and one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. So this guy, Ananias, is also a Christian of Jewish background. He was a devout man, as it says. He was well spoken of by all the Jews, and he also was a follower of Jesus as Messiah. That's going to lead credence to Paul's argument. Verse 14, he said, The God of our fathers, this is Ananias speaking, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why wait, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of of the Lord. The testimony of this man would have been sort of expert testimony. If we were in a court case, well, that guy obviously knows he or she is a doctor or something like that. This is a devout Jewish man that Paul appeals to as he's making his case before these devout Jewish men and women, this crowd that is in front of him there. None of these men, Paul or Ananias, they're not abandoning the God of their fathers. They're responding in obedience to the God of their fathers. Again, like Paul might say, well, what would you do if God spoke to you and told you to do these things? I had to listen. Now, I want to point out something with verse 16. Ananias said, uh, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's how it's worded in the English language. Um, people have taken this verse and come up with a doctrine that is called baptismal regeneration. The idea of baptismal regeneration is this, is that salvation, at least partially, is dependent upon whether you've been baptized or not. And the reason they have that conclusion is, it says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, in, the, in a more literal translation, here's how it's worded. Having arisen, be baptized. And have your sins washed off by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, in that more literal translation, it's, it's pretty clear that there's a separation between salvation being the result of calling on the Lord and baptism as a sign of that or as a mark of that. But I do get it. In a lot of our English translations, it looks like salvation is tied to the cleansing, to the baptism, to the washing. And this is an example, as we study our Bibles, of the importance of not forming a doctrine based on a particular phrase or based on one verse that we think might mean this. And so what we do is we take the whole counsel of God's word. And the whole counsel of God's word means, tells us that baptism is important. Important. I get choked up when I talk about this. That baptism is important. But our salvation is not dependent on baptism. And so I'll give you a couple of verses just to kind of make my point. Joel chapter 2 verse 32. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, well, it doesn't say Jesus, excuse me, on the Lord shall be saved. 
Romans chapter 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice, no mention in either of those places of salvation being dependent on anything we can do, whether it's baptism or church membership or giving or, or serving or anything like that. Acts chapter 16, you may remember that account. Not too long ago, we looked at it. That's where Paul was interacting with the Philippian jailer. And that Philippian jailer said to Paul after this interaction, he said, Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, this is a perfect opportunity. All right, here you go. You got to believe, then you got to be baptized, then you got to join a church, then you got to give. Do those things, you'll be saved. It would have been a perfect opportunity if that's what it required. But notice what Paul says in Acts 16.31. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your household will be saved. You remember the thief on the cross when he turned to the Lord after just sinning against the Lord, turns to the Lord and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I wish I could, but there's no chance for you to be baptized. I'm so, so sorry. I wish I could. He doesn't say that. He says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the overall counsel of God's word is not that anything we do, even something as wonderful as baptism, can save us. It's that regeneration, that work that God does within us that saves us. Baptism is just an outward sign of that inward work. So important. So we want to be careful as we study our Bibles that we don't just kind of pull things out of context and make our cases for them or form doctrines from them. That's just an example from here. Let's continue back quickly. We're running out of time. Amen? No, no. No amen. There's no amen. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after the other, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I stood by approving, authorizing, watching the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's quick point here is this. I never had any intention of leaving Jerusalem. I became a Christian. I had left Jerusalem to go to Damascus. I became a Christian. I came back to Jerusalem. This is where I wanted to stay. These were the people I wanted to reach. But God had different plans for me. And God said, you need to get out of here and you need to go to there. And I said, no, I can't go to there, Lord. These, I can reach them, Lord. These are my people. They know my story. They know my background. I know how they think. I know how they speak. And the Lord said, yeah, cool. But I'm going to use somebody else to reach them. I'm going to reach you, use you to reach somebody else. And I think God does this. His area of strength would have been to stay in Jerusalem and reach Jews. His area of weakness would have been to go to the Gentiles and to reach them. Which of those requires greater dependence on God? Reaching the Gentiles. And so the Lord says, you know what, i got a different plan for you. I'm going to send you somewhere else. He says to him, Lord, but Lord, but Lord. And he says, go. And Paul, in obedience, even after pushing back, he does, he goes to the Gentiles. Again, must have seemed incredible to the Apostle Paul. But the Lord was the Lord, and Paul had to obey. And so off to the Gentiles he goes. So far, so good, right? 
Paul's talking to this crowd. They're listening. Everything is going great. This is wonderful. Now, Paul's about to transition into this, and now this is what you need to do. This is who I was. This is what happened to me. This is how you should respond to that. But he doesn't get a chance to go there because Paul mentions one word. It's the word Gentiles. And he said that God told me that I was to go to the Gentiles, and that was it. They were done listening. Look at uh, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Kill him, is what they're saying. My goodness, how much these people despise the Gentiles. And I'll explain more specifically. But they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Everything was going great. They were listening. There was a hush that came over the crowd. Paul was in a reasonable way. They weren't interrupting him, able to kind of put it all out there and explain himself and build his argument. And he used the word Gentiles, quoting God, go unto the Gentiles, and they freaked out. Now, the Gentile, Gentiles in and of themselves weren't a problem for the Jews. Explain what I mean by that. If a Gentile wanted to convert and become a Jew, sounds good. But if you want to just stay a Gentile and be a Gentile, one of the, the phrases that they used to say about Gentiles is part of the reasons why Gentiles were created were to stoke the fires of hell. They didn't like Gentiles, needless to say. But if they wanted to convert and become a Jew, that's great. The great-grandmother of maybe one of the greatest Jews in the Old Testament, King David, she was a Gentile. We know her name. Ladies, you know her name? No, you don't. Ruth? All right. A lot of ladies like the book of Ruth. Oh, I love that book. Apparently not this crowd. Okay. Um, sorry. But she was a Gentile, a Moabite. She converted to the Jewish faith, and she became a hero of the faith. We have a book named after her, and she's a wonderful example to all of us, men and women. The problem that the Jews had with Gentiles, and specifically the problem that Jews had with Paul's teaching, is that Paul was teaching that Gentiles could get right with God without becoming Jews. That that wasn't a requirement at all. They didn't need to at all. According to the Jews, only Jews could be right with God. And anybody that taught anything different from that had to be eliminated, in their words, from this earth. And so when Paul gets to that point and he mentions their name, the crowd erupts once more and they pounce on the Apostle Paul again, ready to kill him once more. And for what happens next, you'll have to come back next time we're together. Let's pray together. Don't read ahead. Father, we thank you for some of these lessons, examples that we can learn. First off, I thank you for Paul's courage. I thank you for his heart. Lord, that he cares enough about these Jewish people there in Jerusalem that he's even willing to risk his own life to communicate with them. I thank you for the softness of his heart and the lesson that we can learn from that, that it's not about us winning arguments, but it's about winning people to the faith for their good, that they might experience salvation. Lord, I pray that in us, each one of us as believers, that you would do a stirring work. Lord, that you would give us a heart for those that don't yet know Christ. 
that we would step out of our comfort zones to speak into their life, that you might use our words to win them to the Savior. And so thank you for the study of your word today. May it bear much fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.